1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, David James Gonzalez, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Jane Lily Lopez, author of Unauthorized Love: Mixed Citizenship Couples Negotiating Intimacy, Immigration, and the State, which is fresh off the press, uh, published by Stanford University Press. Uh, just when was the official release date, uh, Jane?
0: November 23rd, 2021.
1: Yeah, so there we go. Uh, Jane Lopez is Assistant Professor of Sociology at Brigham Young University. Her research interrogates citizenship as both a legal status and a lived experience or identity, and the effects of law in the public and private realms of everyday life. I'll also mention that Jane and I are our colleagues and friends uh, here at Brigham Young University. We've had the unique uh, opportunity to co-teach together and mentor students in um, a, a kind of special program we have here at BYU for uh, Latino um, students that are interested in uh, learning about civil rights and it's connected to a trip. So we we, uh, we have a lot of fun together uh, in that way. Well, Jane, welcome to New Books in Latino Studies.
0: Thank you so much, DJ. I am so Pleased and feel so privileged to be here talking with you today. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, thank you for accepting the invitation. And I'm excited to uh, discuss your very important book. Um, and uh, I love the cover. So for those that are, are listening, definitely search up or check it out on our website. It's a really neat uh, looking cover. Uh, well, let's get started by just having you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and uh, a little bit about your background, Jane.
0: Uh, okay. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and, uh, I was determined to leave as soon as I could and left when I was 18 and, uh, went to college in California. I lived in England for a while, um, and lived in Utah for a while and then ended up in Southern California. I took, I took a pretty long break between, uh, well, I went straight into my master's degree and did a one-year master's. And then I took five years off, I think, before I went back to grad school, um, and then I kind of, I actually like picked sociology accidentally. I, I was working in the nonprofit sector and decided I wanted a little bit more autonomy and control over my work life. And so I thought about going to grad school and I wanted to stay in San Diego. So I looked at grad um, programs and was between political science and sociology and decided sociology sounded more interesting to me. Um, no offense to political scientists out there, but uh, it was it was kind of accidental, but uh, has been a really, really great fit for me and an exciting um, perspective through which to see the world and to think about uh, immigration and family and society. And so I, basically all of my life feels like a lucky accident. That's all you need to know about me.
1: Thanks for that. Um, yeah, we just missed each other at uh, UC San Diego, right? I I think I finished in 2011, my undergrad there.
0: Yeah, and that's so the you year just, I
1: started. You just started right after that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, well, thanks for that. And um, tell us about the book project, at least how you decided to write this book. Um, was that uh, in any way connected to some of your travels or your NGO work or, or what?
0: yeah um so right when I started grad school, the cohort ahead of mine was really small and my cohort was really large and so they gave any of the students who came in already having a master's degree they gave us an opportunity to take what usually was like a second year seminar uh, practicum to develop a research project. we got to start that in our first year and so I like I was not a sociology undergrad I'd never done sociology before and so I was, Trying to figure out what product project I wanted to do, um, and just right at the beginning of that semester, one of my dear friends, um, her husband was arrested and put in deportation proceedings. And so at the time, I was newly engaged to my Mexican boyfriend, uh, who was living in Mexico, and we were dating across the border, and one of my best friends whose husband was born in Guatemala, but brought to the U S as a young child and had lived his whole life here. Uh, He was arrested and deported, put in deportation proceedings. And, and I just thought, wait, that's, that doesn't make sense with anything that I ever understood about citizenship. I, I kind of thought it was automatic. I thought that we made it really easy for families to be together. And her experience was such a shock to me that I wanted to know more. And, I started looking in the literature and what I found was that we didn't really know very much about mixed citizenship, American couples. Um, And, and I, I, I wanted to know and I wanted to understand what was happening to my friend. uh, What might happen to me, you know, what, what was, what was my future going to be like having just decided to build a family with my now fiance, uh, but realizing that we were, creating this precarious relationship that that I didn't hadn't felt at that point like quite as precarious as as it suddenly did yeah thanks
1: I it makes me think of um you know so many conversations I've had because you just mentioned um you know looking through the literature and then you know not really kind of and being shocked also you, you you begin the book this way right with your friend and learning of um you know the, the shocking result of um uh, that's what's you know, immigration policy was putting on her family, leading to, you know, uh, eventually a, a type of separation and, and other things. And, um, you know, so it, it just made got me reflecting uh, about, like, how do people that are, even, I mean, even in academia, right? I, I did, like you, I, I took um, several immigration seminars, and, and this just really wasn't something that we were reading about, uh, even though it was very interdisciplinary. And um, and a lot of that has made a lot of my work. So, I mean, it's, I think it was why I was so much drawn to your book. Um, as i've heard about it and as it's come out um it, it fills a tremendous gap definitely in in the scholarship but i just also think the public consciousness and that's the the real comment i wanted to make here is that there there is this presumption right that that uh so many uh u.s citizens and americans or those that that come to the united states too migrants of, of various types uh think that this process of you know you get married and if you marry a citizen it's kind of just you know you file some papers right it's 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 going to kind of happen, right? There's there's somehow, there's this narrative, right? That is supported both by, uh, I, I'm thinking of films off the top of my head, um, you know, particularly from like the nineties and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. But there's this notion that this process just should be so much easier. And it, it's really quite shocking when you realize that, that it's not.
0: Yeah. And it's so ironic because our immigration program is, really built around family reunification. The majority of people who acquire permanent residency in the U S did so through a relationship, a direct relationship with the U S citizen. Right. And so it seems on the one hand, like, like, okay, if, that, if that's the way our system works and we know we have this, you know, huge immigrant population and hundreds of thousands of people are getting a uh, permanent residency every year, then then it must be automatic. But it turns out that actually, um, there's for a lot of people, there isn't a line to get into, uh, you know, when you hear people say get in line or whatever. But but even within families, and even where you say, okay, U.S. citizen has a partner and wants to be able to live with that person in the U.S., it's, it seems like such a basic thing that kind of checks all the boxes of what we think about America and American values that, that of course it would be automatic. And to find out that not only is it not automatic, um, but it's not even universal that, that not all citizens qualify, not all of their spouses qualify and tens of thousands of families are, are being rejected every year. um, I think is a real shock. And it's something that a lot of people don't know about because unfortunately it's, it's hard. They're, they're stories and it's a a population that I think is, is easy to remain invisible in our society.
1: Yeah. You write, um, at the beginning of the, the introduction, um, that after, you know, doing all this research over a decade, right. That you have come to learn that this experience of your friend Camille, that you begin with, right. Um, that rather than being some type of crazy anomaly or accident, that her experience um, of being, of, of having their, their marriage um, validated, if you will, by the nation state, by the US nation state, by granting them family unification and uh, allowing her uh, non-citizen you know, uh, spouse to uh, acquire residency and work towards right naturalization, that the rejection and separation that resulted you know, from uh, USCIS's decision is a central aspect of immigration policy. It's as central as you're you're just explaining of this notion that U.S. immigration policy is built around the idea of, of reuniting families or bringing families together. And um, you know, to, to, to those of us that, that that study this, this is no more shocking. But even still, even reading it in in the way that you put it there, um, that acknowledgement is it is itself striking, uh, right? And, and almost terrible, right? It, it's so oxymoronic that, you know, our immigration policy has kind of been built on this notion of bringing people together, um, particularly over, right, the latter half of the, the 20th century, but then an, an equal portion to that and importance is the notion of actually keeping people apart. Can you break that down a little bit more for us of how does this happen? You know, if we go if we go through, say, the latter half of the 20th century, what changes in immigration policy, um, you know, create this dilemma?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um... So U.S. immigration policy for a long time was explicitly racist and only allowed certain people to uh, extend access to citizenship and permanent residency based on race. And those race-based uh, exclusions weren't co- fully eliminated until the 1960s and 1965. Um, but, but there have been other less explicit limitations that have been built into family reunification law that still only allow certain kinds of relationships, certain kinds of families, um, certain kinds of citizens, and certain kinds of non-citizens to access family reunification. And they do have racialized outcomes. And as well as unequal outcomes based on gender and and other things, where certain groups are disadvantaged in the process. Um, but I think so. I think what has changed too is, um, I mean, maybe maybe it's it hasn't changed, but the rejection of these families is happening on a case by case basis, right. and so it's really invisible and. Was it 2018 when um, family separation was happening at the border and it was uh-huh. explicit and it was happening to thousands of families all at once? And there was, rightfully so, there was outrage. There were protests. Um, we we don't see all the tens of thousands of families that are being rejected, that are being separated, that are experiencing uh, deportation and collateral deportation. Um because it's not all happening in the same place at the same time. And so I think, you know, the, the laws have been carefully crafted to preference people based on their class status on their country of origin on, uh, you know, other things. And we can get into the details of that later if you want to. Uh, but I think just like while, while those, uh, priorities um of the lawmakers are kind of written into in in a implicit way written into the law and how the law is exercised I think the reason why we don't hear more about this and see more about this is just that it's not it's it's happening in a way that's very diffuse and so and for every single family like it's they have their one shot and so it's harder to organize and say, let's change this. When I know that I only have one shot to be able to live with my, together with my family or not, and to put all of that on the line to change the system, I think has made it so that a lot of people um, don't speak out, whether they succeed in family reunification or not.
1: Yeah, no, I totally get what you, how you began there with saying that, you know, separation, right, uh, has always been a part of U.S. immigration policy. Um, You know, I mean, that is a matter of fact. Uh, You can trace this all the way back to, right, Irish pauper migration, right, where practices of of deportation, even before there's a federal bureaucracy, exists, right, uh, are separating families, separating women from children, right, deporting Irish women, leaving their children in in the United States or forcing them to in in various ways. So uh, certainly... Definitely. Yes, that's, that's always been, and it's always been discriminatory too, right? Um, this notion of, of nation states, uh, and you write about this in the book, right? Basically describe you know, defining who's in and who's out. So those are uh, certainly very long and, and um, legacies, right? Um, of, of, you know, immigration policy. Um, and yet on, on the aspect of, of family reunification, you know, the big shift that kind of happens in 1965. And as you mentioned, is the end to the racial quota system, uh, official end to it doesn't mean that, right. As you mentioned, poli- race, uh, immigration policy is no longer racist because, uh, all sorts of new limits are imposed, um, that don't take into account, right. Um, particularly factors, migration, migratory trends from the global south, things like that, right? And demographics change. Um, but then, you know, as you're saying there, it what, what strikes me as something, and again, maybe it's not so new, but uh, some of the policies, again, in the latter 20th century, create this situation where, you know, one person, as you mentioned, they, they have, a couple has one shop to present, make the right case that they're, that they deserve to live together right, um, in the United States, uh, and I think an example, an early example in your book that really encapsulates this, and it, my mouth literally dropped open, as uh, you talked about since chapter two, is the experience of uh, of Julia, Santiago, and Sergio. Can you just summarize a quick there, you know, that case, you know, and how it, it really kind of encapsulates the point that you're making there?
0: Yeah, yeah, so um I first met Julia um, and and spoke with her and Santiago when they were living in Mexico. And um, a friend had had put me in touch with them and said, you know, they're just these wonderful people, and they've had such such a hard time. Um, they met when they were both really young. Santiago came to the U.S. Uh, in his late teens and started working. And they met working at a fast food restaurant together. And Julia was finishing high school and starting college. And um, they dated for a long time and fell in love and decided to get married and were just really excited, young and in love and excited about what the future could bring them. Um, Julia had never, she wasn't, a legal scholar, and she'd never really talked to anybody about how um, the U.S. immigration process worked. But she knew that as a U.S. citizen that she could sponsor Santiago for legal status. And so shortly after they married, she filled out the paperwork. Um, They were obviously young, didn't have a lot of money. She didn't consult a lawyer. And they sent everything in. And she was expecting, like, they were going to get a letter in the mail saying, great, you know, we'll send you all the paperwork and good news soon. And instead she got a letter in the mail telling them that they have 30 days to leave the country or that Santiago would be forcibly removed from the country. And she talked to me about calling USCIS and saying, I don't understand. I need to talk to someone. I don't understand. And, you know, just sobbing on the phone and and the woman just kept saying, read the letter, read the letter. Um, And so the next thing they did was they left. Uh, They took the government at their word that Santiago would be forcibly removed if he didn't, quote, uh, unquote, voluntarily remove himself. And so they packed their lives up and they moved to Mexico. Um, Santiago was from uh, Mexico City. And they went there to visit his family, but after doing some research, they thought that they'd have a better chance at establishing themselves and having good luck um, as a family by moving closer to to the border. Um, So they moved to Monterrey, and Julia actually then spent the next year and a half finishing college in the U.S. and only seeing Santiago on um, holidays and other special occasions. And um, one thing that she said that stuck with me that I will never forget is that she said that she felt like she was a widow because she had a ring on her finger and she knew that she wasn't single, but she was married to someone that she never got to see. That was the experience of the first few years of their relationship. And then, and then they moved to Mexico and They tried so hard to make their marriage work, but the pressure was too strong. They consulted so many lawyers and basically they were told, you know, if you hadn't left the U S you might have some more options, but since you have left, you have to wait 10 years before you can try to apply. And even after those 10 years are over, there's no guarantee that, um, your application will be successful once you apply. And. Uh, so shortly after I spoke with, uh, Julia and Santiago, um, they had already separated and shortly thereafter they divorced. Um, but Julia told me at the time, you know, my country hurt me and I, I, I'm not ready to go back yet. And so she stayed at her job working at an American school there. And, um, not too long afterwards, she met one of her coworkers, uh, and, and fell in love and, I contacted her just kind of out of the blue a couple years after our interview. And I said, I published this article and I w- I wanted to share it with you. And she wrote back and said, hey, thanks for sharing this. You know, it's really hard to read back and he- see in in my words, like, how much I was suffering at that time. And she said, uh, you might be interested to know, I actually married my coworker, another Mexican, um, and we're in the process of applying for his residency at the time. Um, And with Sergio, uh, Julia's new husband, their experience with family reunification was completely different. But there were some really important distinctions between Sergio and Santiago and also between Julia when she was like a young 20 something college student and Julia seven or eight years later uh, when she was an established professional that made Julia and Sergio's experience with family reunification really different. Um, Julia, as the U.S. citizen, earned enough money to sponsor Sergio, something that she didn't do as a young college student uh, with Santiago. Sergio, who had grown up in a an upper middle class family in Monterrey, had already had a tourist visa to the U.S., could travel freely within the U.S. and could travel to meet Julia's family and be with them. Um, and what I've found through my research is that having a visa is almost like kind of having a pre-approval to getting permanent residency, at least for the non-citizen spouse, um, because they've already been um, vetted by the government. And and so things were really straightforward to the point that Julia actually told me, they're processing his application faster than we wanted. We weren't actually ready to move to the U.S. yet, but it's all happening so fast. Um, whereas Santiago, who had entered the U.S. without coming through a port of entry, Uh, who didn't have a visa, who didn't have that approval to be in the country, um, who came from a working-class family in Mexico City and didn't have the same socioeconomic resources that Sergio had, uh, his path to family reunification was going to be much, much, much more difficult than Sergio's. And it was just shocking to me to see that how this same person could have two completely different experiences with family reunification. And there was nothing more legitimate or valid about one of those relationships than the other. Um, But the law had built in these distinctions that made it so that one of those relationships uh, was worthy of approval by the American government and the other one wasn't. Well, yes. I mean, right. And, and you could almost argue that
1: maybe if, uh, you know, this would have happened, uh, what, twenty or 30 years earlier, right. Prior to the 1996 illegal immigration reform and immigrant responsibility act. Right. If it would have happened before then, right. When, uh, the bar is kind of to justify and, and prove the authenticity and legitimacy of, of your love. Right. Um, and that's kind of the the bar prior to, right, the latter Ira Ira, um, you know, bill which put in more income restrictions and and higher penalties, right? That that's coming out of the '90s where there's a lot more anti-immigrant fervor, particularly after California's Prop 187, things like that, right? I don't know. Do you think that? Do you think that? You know, say you take this case and you put it in 1990 or you put it in 1998, uh, you think, right? That that uh, absolutely. Right. It would have been different. Right. Yeah.
0: um... Yeah. I mean, I think particularly um, the thing that mixed citizenship couples face is that if the non-citizen partner entered the U.S. without a visa, um, if they've lived in the U.S. for more than a year, and it's highly likely that they have, if during that time they've met a U.S. citizen and gotten married. Right. And submitted their paperwork. If they've been in the U.S. for at least a year, they have to leave Um, Well, regardless, if they came without a visa, they have to leave and go to the U.S. consulate in their country of citizenship for the interview. But by leaving the U.S., they are automatically subject to a 10-year bar to reentry. So like 10 years of waiting before they're allowed to legally re-enter the US, even if their family reunification application is approved because they qualify, right? Because their relationship is found to be legitimate because they check all the other boxes. Now they have to wait 10 years. And that came with um, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act in 1996. And before that, I even talked to some couples who were almost in like the exact same situation as Julia and Santiago, but because they had married in the early nineties instead, their experience was completely different. And, um, you know, it was still expensive. It still required a trip to see La Juarez. Um, but they weren't banished from the country for 10 years. And I think that's the huge difference. Um, I'll, I'll put in this like asterisk here, which is that you, there is a waiver that you can apply for called the extreme hardship waiver that couples in this situation who are facing this long-term, uh, bar from being able to live together legally in the U S uh, they can apply for, for a waiver for the bar. Um, but you have to prove extreme hardship above and beyond the hardship that you would presume to experience following the deportation of your spouse or, you know, parent, if, if it's a child, right. And, and demonstrate the, the, damage to a citizen. So the hardship that a citizen would face in order to get relief. And um, so like the bar is pretty high, right? Since uh, the extreme hardship that anyone faces when an immediate family member is deported is pretty significant. Um, You have to prove something above and beyond that. And there still really isn't like, there aren't clear um, indications of like what qualifies as extreme hardship. And so it's very subjective. It depends on who's looking at your case. Maybe it depends on whether or not they had lunch yet um, or, you know, whose case they read right before yours. And was that person's story like a lot sadder than yours? And therefore it doesn't sound like you're going to experience hardship anymore. Um, And only some families qualify to apply for that waiver as well. So if you entered the U.S. without a visa, were, were caught at the border or anywhere else inside the US and sent back. And if you come back again, you can't apply for the waiver. So so you have these families that that get stuck and um, that is 100% due to that 1996 legislation, um, which if we just decided to throw those three and 10 year bars out the window, it would immediately change um, families' opportunities quite significantly.
1: Right and as you you write, you know what Ira Ira did that's the 99 the 96 uh, law or changes to uh, the Immigration Nationality Act right it you say that you're right here that it, re- it redefined the American family by prioritizing the reunification of certain kinds uh, of citizens wealthier wider more highly educated males right with certain kinds of immigrants higher class better educated non-latino females right um yeah. And it's striking. And what I should also mention too, before I should have mentioned this from the beginning, right? That that your extensive research is—I mean, this is based on not just right your examination of immigration law and a few interviews, but you interviewed over fifty-six couples, right? Yeah. Um, and so, Julia, uh, Santiago, and Sergio, this is just one case, right? One example out of you know uh, the fifty-six, um, and which you know have can you can you break down maybe some of the demographics, you know, for us, like uh, where are these couples mostly from? I mean, there's obviously always a, a citizen spouse, right? That's male or female tied to the United States. What about uh, the non-immigrant uh, spouses? Where typically are they coming from?
0: Yeah, so um I limited the couples that I interviewed to those with a US citizen spouse and with the non-citizen spouse, or at least they weren't a citizen at the time of marriage. So that was the key point. Um many of them had naturalized by the time that I interviewed them, but at the time of marriage, they were they were not US citizens. And I limited them to um spouses from, from Mexico and Central America. So El Salvador, Guatemala, and, um, Honduras, but nobody actually, I didn't find any couples with a partner from Honduras. So they're not in my sample. Um, the vast majority of the couples that I, um, spoke to were from Mexico. So 50 of the 56, um, had a non-U.S. citizen spouse, uh, who was from Mexico, um, Five couples had the non-U.S. citizen spouse from El Salvador and then one in Guatemala. Um, And the reason why I limited it to these countries was primarily because uh, U.S. immigration law says if you entered without a visa, like Santiago did, uh, you're subject and you marry a U.S. citizen, you have to leave for your interview and you become subject to this 10-year bar. If you came to the U.S. on a visa even if that visa expired. And so you technically are now an undocumented immigrant as well. Um, but if you came on a visa, you can ad- apply for family reunification and do it all from within the U S. And so you don't face those 10, that 10 year bar to re-entry. And so I wanted to talk to couples coming from the countries that had the highest rates of both immigration and, um, coming in on visas, but also had high rates of immigration of people coming in across the border without a visa. And, you know, the vast majority of people who are entering the U.S. without a visa are people who can reach the border. Um, so like are geographically relatively close to the U.S. Uh, border to be able to cross it. So so that's why I spoke to um, couples from these countries to Get a sample both of couples who had um, more like straightforward access to family reunification who wouldn't be subject to these severe penalties because the spouse, the non-U.S. citizen spouse came to the U.S. on a visa and either had a valid visa or it had expired by the time they married. And also talking to couples that um, did not, with the non-U.S. citizen spouse having no legal authorization to be in the country. Um, so I also talked to couples living within and outside of the U.S. 32 were living in the U.S. and 24 were living outside of the U.S. Uh, with 23 in Mexico and one in Guatemala. Um, they include included families in the U.S. who were currently unauthorized, formerly unauthorized, uh, meaning they had adjusted to a legal status or had maintained continual legal status within the U.S. And then of families outside the U.S. included those in which the non-U.S. citizen spouse had experienced deportation or removal from the U.S., those with a tourist visa or with permanent residency uh, living outside the U.S., and those whose spouse had never traveled to the U.S., had never gotten a visa or done anything um, involving the U.S. at all. Um, I can I can go more in detail if you want to know other things about the couples, but. I think it it's um the most important thing is that I interviewed families with like a range of statuses and experiences and also included families who had been officially like rejected or who had chosen to live outside of the US uh because in thinking about that comment that I make about these laws redefining the American family you know we we have made many of these American families invisible by pushing them outside the bounds of the state. You know, when we when we deport a U.S. citizen spouse or reject the uh, validity of a claim of a U.S. citizen that their family should live together on U.S. soil, uh, we remove that family from our site, Right. And so we don't see those people in the U.S. and think, oh, there's another American family. And I wanted to make sure um, to to make more visible these families experiences and and their stories and make sure that as we're thinking about U.S. immigration, we're not only thinking about the families that are here, um, but also thinking about the families that that are not here, either by choice or or due to government action and thank you for that and I know you did
1: a great job summarizing that and and for our listeners there's a whole description you know unlike oh, historians uh, yeah. sociologists usually have sections right where you describe your methodology <laughs> uh, so there's there's an appendix that where you break down your methodology and, and another that that provides a background on uh, those that you're the couples you're interviewing uh, so you know thank you for summarizing that um, I'm I'm struck again by um, you know how you begin the book. You basically refer to you know the privilege that you've had to do this research and that you you get to tell love stories, right? In in, in many ways, right? Um, uh, so everything that we're talking about, right, are is, is resulting from you know all the time that you spent, right, having people open up to you and and share with you uh, their different experiences, their different knowledge about navigating this process, and. I think you, uh, you you sum it up very well in one of your chapters that that basically explains the high stakes of family unification um, as a, a, like a, a game of poker, and it's obviously not a game, right? So this is not to make light of it. But anyways, it, it really makes it easy easier, if you will, to to understand. Um, again, the different knowledge and experiences that these, these couples have. So, and and it's really based upon, right, what their legal consciousness is when they, they so-called begin the game, right? And the, so can you just break that down for us? This, this process, again, you you refer to it as family reunification poker and, you know, how crucial it is uh, for these couples to have some type of legal consciousness, regardless of the law, right? I mean, the the law is the same so-called, so to speak. There is this discretionary power that you, mentioned earlier, right? So, so much does, is, can be determined by whether someone's in a bad mood, right? Whether someone like, literally likes you or not, buys your story, right? Uh, You know, buys your documents or not. There's so much discretionary power within the immigration bureaucracy, but there, there is also, you know, that aspect of agency. um, And this is where uh, this legal consciousness can, can come in and and kind of direct or impact the outcomes, right? For some of these couples.
0: Yeah. Um and thank you for talking about love stories because it it was so like beautiful and felt sacred to me to be able to listen to couples stories even like when I spoke with Julian and Santiago and they were already separated and you know pretty certain that they were going to be divorced that it was still they shared their love story with me and it was it was beautiful to hold that and also so hard to know that the U S government had played such a direct role in uh, making their love no longer sustainable. And, you know, while it might seem pretty like, like really extreme and miraculous things have to happen for people with two different citizenships to meet and fall in love. You know, what I found is that these couples were falling in love and finding each other in all the same ways that same citizenship couples do. And that for the most part, their experiences weren't any more, um, unlikely or um, miraculous than any of the other love stories that we hear and that we tell each other. And and so what I found was that it wasn't the nature of these mixed citizenship relationships themselves, but the laws, both as they're written and as they're applied, that are shaping these families' outcomes and pushing them down these very different tra- trajectories. And you know, we've talked a little bit about some of the bias that's written into laws that make you prove uh, that you as a citizen earn enough and are worthy to sponsor your spouse, right? Or that your non-citizen spouse came to US the right way or has the right qualifications to, to be deemed as worthy. Um, relationships also must be proven to be legitimate marital relationships rather than those entered into uh, fraudulently. Um, and there are different different criteria that are written in the law that that detail kind of the checklist that you need to do, the things you need to do to prove that your relationship is legitimate, that, that you are both deserving uh, of this, of family reunification. Um, and so like, while I find a lot of problematic things written into the law that limit certain kinds of partnerships, relationships, and individuals in those relationships from accessing family unification law, I was not necessarily surprised by that, um, given how much policy past and present in our country builds in those different uh, preferences. But what really surprised me was that so many of the couples that I spoke with had family unification outcomes that did not align Completely, with the different requirements that were written into the law, uh, it it didn't make sense to me how there were some families who, according to the law as written, should have qualified for reunification and didn't, and there were other families who, according to the law as written, uh, should not have qualified and did, and and so I realized, like you said, that that there is this level of agency, and the government obviously has a lot has most of the control over this process and its outcomes but um the couples have a lot of control too uh, it's not something automatic so it's not like as soon as you get married your marriage certificate is like forwarded on to USCIS and then they follow up with you and say hey tell us more about your relationship and prove to us that this is legitimate There's actually no uh, requirement at all for couples to apply for family reunification. So there's a temporal aspect to it where couples can decide when they apply. Um, They also have some flexibility in what they choose to share with the government what details about their relationship, about their past, about how many times they've come into the United States across the border, about um you know whether or not they're living together uh and sharing a um home there there are different elements of their relationship that they can choose to share or not share and that affects um the the way that their relationship appears to the officer right so by strategically determining what to share or not share they can prove themselves to be more or less deserving of family unification. Um, And they also can choose to present themselves in specific ways that make it look like their relationship falls uh, more closely in line with the different criteria that are outlined in the law. And so, you know, but what I found was about like half of the couples that I talked to had no idea that they had any control in the matter. Um, And so they basically thought like, this is a thing, Um, I'm gonna apply for it. And for those couples, their family reunification outcomes pretty much turned out the way you would expect according to what it says in the law. And that meant some families had a pretty straightforward reunification process um, and other families were shocked to realize that they didn't actually qualify at all. But there were other couples who, because they knew a couple who'd gone through this process before, or because they consulted with a lawyer, or because for some reason, they had this insider knowledge, um, understood that strategy could make a difference in their reunification outcomes. And that there were ways to represent their relationship um, that could change The outcome. Um, and you know, I think one of the big things is particularly improving the legitimacy of your relationship. Um, the longer you've been together, the more of a shared history you have and the more evidence you have demonstrating the legitimacy of your relationship. And so if you think about that as like one of the cards in your hand that you're dealt in poker, uh, if you apply immediately after you marry, some couples might have been dating for a really long time and have evidence of their relationship in that sense, right? But other couples might not have as much of a history of their relationship, but wait a couple of years. uh, And especially if you achieve this gold standard of relationship legitimacy, which is having a child, right? If you have a child and can add that card to your hand, as long as you can prove uh the paternity of that child, right? Uh that's basically like all the evidence that you need to prove that your relationship is legitimate. So giving your relationship some more time and maybe um that that can be one way to really change your hand. Uh similarly, like if we go back to Julia's situation, applying as like a college student with no income or maybe if you're working part-time Um, means that you're most likely not earning enough money to sponsor your spouse. You have to get someone else who does um, to pay for you or else you just don't qualify at all, right? And so waiting until the US citizen is in a financial or economic position to to have a stronger income. Like when I was a grad student, I didn't earn enough money to sponsor my husband for his green card. Um, And so we lived in Mexico and I commuted across the border and, uh, we waited, right. Until I had a job where I earned enough money to be able to sponsor him. Right. And so we, I waited to trade out that like low income grad student, uh, stipend card for, um, for a different card that would make my hand and make our case stronger. Um, and so, so there are ways that couples can just strategically build up a stronger case, right. And strengthen, uh, their poker hand. Um, some couples also find ways to bend the rules to their benefit and to, um, to strategically withhold information or disclose certain information in ways that make it better for them. Um, and that allow them not to disclose information that would, um, disqualify them from family reunification so so in this way like the uh, way that couples approach family reunification law can directly shape their outcomes um but we can't forget that like the house always wins isn't that what they always say right um so the dealer holds their own cards too and they, uh, you know, the U S government can change the rules on you, uh, which happened to me, (laughs) um, you know, depending on who's in office or, or what the current economic or political or, you know, whatever situation is, the rules can change. And so maybe like all that hard work that I put in to put together this perfect hand, uh, doesn't matter anymore because the rules of the game have changed. And, you know, you're right in that it's, we don't want to make light of this by saying that it's a game, but it, but it's, I think a helpful metaphor to think about what couples can do to improve their odds. Right. But also what the experience is like, because for most couples in practice, you only get one chance to play the game every 10 years, or maybe once in a lifetime. Right. And so knowing that you have a little bit more control in determining when you decide to play, what cards you're going to play, or what you need to do to present yourselves and your relationship in the best light um, can make the odds of you winning that once in a decade play at the game uh, so much higher than if you just go in without any strategic. Um, without any strategy or any understanding that that you are an agent in determining at least partially right the way that your um, your family reunification decision will play out
1: right and you know I'm thinking now about you know right so there there's 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 this agency that we're talking about and um, which can play out as you're, you're, you're stressing and emphasizing over and over again, years, I <laughs> think three, five, ten years. Right. So, so playing your hand, if you will, right. Is really not simple or, 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 or short, even in the best case scenario. And this has tremendous consequences, right. When so often when, when immigration or immigrants are discussed, I think in, right. In, in public forums, right. Um, or, or, even through media and whatnot, there's always a focus on an individual, right? And that's because of our citizenship law. And you talk about this earlier early, early in your book, the, the, the problems, and we'll get to this at the end, we'll kind of wrap up with this, the problems with the, the individualistic approach to citizenship, right? But what we're talking about here too uh, is that these individuals are part of families, and these, which is, you know, still, we can argue, right, the basic organizing unit of society, right? And that's families written broadly, right? Um, not trying, not being overly prescriptive, right, um, uh, in what that is. But um, that clearly, I mean, so much of our, you still look at tax law, tax policy is based on the idea of the family, right? You get much better tax breaks and benefits, right? If you're married, you have children, et cetera, yada, 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 right? So, you know, there's this again contradiction with the policy where you are. You're, it's as as again you referred to earlier. The 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 USCIS agent I think that Camille was responding to was working with was just saying, "Well, just read the letter and do what it says, right?" Um, and not again. I'm sure that I'm not going to read too much into that immigrant immigration official, but. Again, the lack of concerning the consequences or understanding the consequences to families. So, can you speak a little bit more about that? I mean, it's often referred to. We talk about immigrants and assimilating, but this is more about integration. How does right the these kind of hurdles for families, right to? Um, for lack of a better term, right, regularize their status or preserve their status or change status, right, to something that allows them to live together in the United States, how does that impact, right, how other members of the family, right, uh, particularly those with citizenship status um, that are U.S. citizens and, and have rights, therefore, how does it take away or infringe those rights?
0: Yeah, um, and... I am. I'm like looking at the time, and no, we don't. I'm. Not, I'm not going to go into like a ton of depth about any of these, but half the half the book is looking at like what happens. What happens after you get that decision, right? And um, so I look at integration and disintegration at the family level, both with regard to spatial integration, structural integration, and social integration, and um, what I think you know, what, what the U S Supreme court has said very literally is like, Hey, we have, we're not hurting the citizen at all by not letting their spouse come in the country. Like we have quote, simply denied the non-citizen admission into the country. Like, um, and so there's this claim that like treating citizens and immigrants differently, even if they live in the same family or part of the same, uh, family or household, uh, that's okay. We can do that. And we're really not, these are like secondary outcomes for citizens, but all of the couples that I talked to were directly affected citizens and non-citizens alike by their family reunification outcome or for the families like mine for most of, well, for during the whole entire time I was conducting these interviews who hadn't yet applied. Right. And we're kind of in this right. in-between space. And there's like this collateral
1: damage. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there are couples um, who for couples who are rejected officially, um, it really just like the spatial, structural and social integration of all family members basically implodes. Right. Whether they're forced to deport as a family outside the U.S., experience separation with some family members in the U.S. or outside of the U.S., or live within these, you know, very limited geographic bounds, afraid of detection, right, as a family when they're living with someone with unauthorized status in the U.S. Um, Every single member of that household is experiencing spatial disintegration from sometimes literally from U.S. territory, right, and other times just uh, being pushed to the periphery of the community and the spaces that they inhabit. Um, similarly, even when the U.S. citizen partner has some access to structural institutions like higher education, like uh, having credit and being able to get a mortgage or, you know, uh, having legal authorization to work, those uh, that can benefit the family but only to a certain extent right and their their partners inability to access those same institutions creates these really significant barriers and and of course I, I think it we would assume that deportation uh, or official exclusion from the country is also going to lead to social uh, disconnection right when your country has told you that your family does isn't worthy of belonging uh, it it hits you pretty hard, um, and it's not like it's just a secondary effect for you. And you get to keep going on and loving your country when your country has told you, like you decided to love the wrong person, and your family isn't worthy of being here. Um, and so, like I tried in the book to give these people's who have experienced the worst outcomes of family reunification to share their stories and to give them time to, to speak their truth and to share their experiences and also actually to like demonstrate the resilience of these couples love and, uh, their families in the face of so much, uh, structural violence. Um, but I also, I think I was most surprised to see how a positive family reunification outcome benefited the US citizens in ways that they didn't expect either. Um and so, you know, I talk in each of these chapters too about families who who received um who were granted family reunification feel more spatially integrated in the United States and actually are able to travel more to their other country of membership and build stronger relationships with people there too. And so they have like twice as much uh community and Family and relationships as they did before, and feel completely welcome, and feel like they represent the United States and what the United States stand for. And so, it's not just that like our current family reunification policies are really, really, really hurting and harming families that um, have been rejected and who are written out of existence through our laws, um, but the laws are actually helping families that do qualify for family reunification, which would suggest that it'd be a really great idea for us to support more American families by supporting more mixed citizenship couples who are seeking family reunification and making it so much easier for families to officially belong in the U.S. rather than conserving that privilege to only particular kinds of citizens and their spouses.
1: Uh, thank you for that. It's, you know, and that your last point kind of gets to where my our, the kind of closing question was, which are you know what what changes need to be made, um, you know, to immigration policy, particularly on this issue, right, of family reunification. As as you pointed out, I mean, this there is no this is no secret. This is something that that right post ERCA, that's the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, right, with its um, you know big amnesty provisions that led to roughly around two million. Um, undocumented uh, immigrants being able to regularize their status and eventually obtain citizenship. I mean, the studies of that show how, what a tremendous benefit, just the 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 status change, you know, is not just to the individual, right, but to, you know, families and for generations, right? So um, it, indeed, right, there are positive examples, and, and you provide many of them. Um, anything else uh, you want to bring up in regards to um, the changes, you know, that, that could be made that aren't so, you know, that don't need to be so miraculous or earth changing, right. I mean, particularly under considering we have a Congress that can't do anything, right. They, um, you know, they cannot make a bargain over anything other than paying themselves, right. Somehow they always, they're always able to come together in a bipartisan fashion to ensure the government doesn't shut down enough to where they don't get paid. Right. Um <laughs> But keeping that in mind, right, maybe it's not our biggest pie in the sky wish, right, for a change in immigration policy, but but what would suggestion or hope do you have? Yeah,
0: I mean, there are some really basic things that could so easily make really big changes. Eliminating the bars to reentry, I think, would be the first. And my recommendation would be to throw them out altogether. Um, But, you know, at a minimum... To drop the bars to re-entry for the spouses of U.S. citizens who are applying for family reunification. Similarly, getting rid of the minimum income thresholds. How how can we be requiring citizens to uh, prove that they're earning this much money when a minimum wage income does not meet that minimum threshold? Right. Um, so we're like bringing being able to be reunited with your spouse could actually help to like lift you out of poverty, but you have to prove that you're like not, um, that you're not in poverty before you can enjoy that benefit when like the government actually isn't ensuring that people are earning a wage that's above the poverty level. Um, there, there are other changes that I think, I think we should expand our definition of what qualifies as a legitimate relationship and a legitimate family to, um, recognize what I think now maybe, you know, 30 years ago when the law was written or 35 years, I guess, uh, it seemed like, uh, certain, there was a much more strict definition of family or there were quote unquote, non-traditional families, right. That are, I think are actually very common in society today. Uh, allow citizens to sponsor their grandparents, allow, uh, citizens to sponsor not only their spouses, but their in-laws, right. To be able to come to recognize, um, other relationships uh, and allow couples who aren't married to have an opportunity to to live together. Um, but to expand our notion of family to recognize the relationships that are most important in sustaining our you know, social structure and creating that that uh, family life, like you said, a family defined more broadly uh, is what I would like to see reflected in our laws. Um, also, for families living outside of the U.S. uh, or who are outside of the U.S. at the time of application, creating a way for someone to apply for some kind of status that doesn't require them to live full-time in the U.S., but would allow their relationship to be recognized and would make it easier for families to then, you know, live in the U.S. for a while or live outside of the U.S. uh, for a while. Um, But, you know, like, we actually did for a while exercise this automatic citizenship and from the mid 1800s, uh, mid to late 1800s to uh, the 1920s or 30s, I think. And you're going to like, you're the history buff. And so I know you're going to be like, Jean, you got to have your dates right here. But um, the wives, the non-U.S. citizen wives of U.S. citizen men uh, were automatically granted citizenship. Um, there was a smaller period of time when, US citizen women who married non-citizen men were stripped of their citizenship. I'm not, I'm not recommending that we return to that, but, but for a while it was automatic for the non-US citizen wives of US citizen men. And, um, there's nothing to suggest that like, that was a huge mistake or that, that those non-citizens who were automatically granted, uh, you know, citizenship, but even if we just, gave couples the benefit of the doubt, right? And created the, the opportunity for them to try to succeed in love and life together by giving them even a temporary authorized status rather than, uh, you know, requiring families to prove themselves worthy first, uh, could change, could change our society and, and really change things for so many families. And what I can only believe would be a positive way for all of us, not just for the families, but for the community members um, who benefit from having these families here, from having strong families that are recognized and validated by the U.S. government. So I, I think there actually is a way. I mean, I, I'm not expecting uh, Congress to just pick that up and run with it, but I think we should be more flexible in thinking about like. Why don't we start from a place of wanting to help families rather than only wanting to help families that are already succeeding and and hurting other families because uh, we think they might not do that well or just because there's something about them that we don't like. I think if we started from a place of help, uh, we'd be surprised to see like how much good came of it. And I think it would be even more good than just the benefit that the families would experience.
1: Well, Jane, thank you for your scholarship. Thank you for uh, coming on to New Books in Latino Studies, and um, not only sharing your expertise with us, but um, I can't I can't emphasize uh, to our listeners how not just, well, the book is, is written. Um, it's, it's succinct, it's thorough, but also the, the stories that you bring to light, I think that's what just, you know, pulls you in and you begin pretty much, I think every chapter with, um, and then there's several stories sprinkled throughout the chapters, uh, you know, of, you know, these people's lives and their experiences. So as, as you said, these love stories, which are, which are beautiful and they're powerful and, and you let them speak for themselves. So, uh, thank you for that, that tremendous work. And again, for your time.
0: Thank you so much, DJ. It's been great to be with you.